please welcome Clinton as we continue the story. Good. Thanks, Pat. So good to be with you guys this morning. Um, I almost didn't make it. Um, we're in the process of trying to teach my 17-year-old daughter to drive. Um, and on Thursday, I saw my grandmother. The problem is she's been dead for 20 years. Um, but she was saying, come, welcome, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> because Talita thought that the road that we, that we were traveling on has preference over the road that a Porsche was traveling on. And she just decided to cut in front of him. And I saw my grandmother. And uh, just want to say, if you don't believe in heaven, it's real. She's loving it. Um, I love the fact that we're talking about story. Um, because I, I firmly believe that great stories have power. Uh, just a quick hand. Who has a Netflix subscription? Binge? Stan, <laughs> Amazon, <laughs> and, and we can, why do we have all those subscriptions? Because we love story. There's something about a good story, and if you know one, just text me the name, um, because we run out of good stories. But a good story has, has power. It literally translates us into the moment of, of that story. And I, and I love the fact that when you think about story, there's always a few things that's got to be in place. And for me, it always starts with a letter. So there's got to be a premise, a place, people. There's got to be a plot and a purpose. Um, and, and the way that all those things come together sort of defines a good story. And I think sometimes one of the best experiences in stories are the, the real-life stories where you actually see what actually happened. It's not just imaginary. It's something that actually happened. But then you get some stories where you're in it and you really don't want to be there. I remember when I was um, 13 years old, I went on my first five-day hike. Uh, we had to carry everything. So it was a fully um, packed kit for five days in South Africa and the Drakensberg. And we uh, had a circle route for the five days that we traveled. And my dad was an officer in the army. So he gave me a real army backpack. The thing weighed 14 kilograms without anything in. Um, and, and my mum believed that I needed food, so she stacked that bag. So we, so we had to carry all five days of food. So when I put that thing on, I was, I was literally walking like that. Um, it was bad. And halfway into our first day, it was about an 18-kilometer walk on day one. Um, because my mum gave me so much food to eat, the normal processes in the body started working. Um, and we were a group of about 40 young people and I had to go to the loo. Uh, the problem is they don't have loos in the middle of the Drakensberg. You've got to do something that at that point I've never done before. You've got to find the bush for a number two. <laughs> so I'm sort of thinking about this. Am I going to stop this whole group to say, hey, I'm the first one that needs to go for a number two? And I decided, no, I'm not doing that. Um, I'm just sort of going to drift to the back and uh, just slip away, and I'll catch up. It's, it's an easy thing. There's only one pathway, so I did that. I put my, my backpack down, and because I was in a real hurry, I forgot to take my toilet paper with me, which was the plot. <laughs> and as I did what nature was calling for at that moment, I realized I needed my toilet paper. So I went sort of jumping to where I put my bag, but someone saw the bag, the ba and they took it. So now I'm in a crisis. 
I need to make a plan, and it's not very resourceful. So I found the biggest leaf I could find, and that's the second plot line that I realized. You've got to inspect both sides of the leaf <laughs> before using it. <laughs> it doesn't bring me any pleasure sharing this, but it's a good story. Uh, because I only inspected the one side of the leaf, not realizing that the other side was full of little thorns, this very fine thorns. And, and as I did that, I realized that I'm going to have a problem for the next five days. Um, so everything was clean and I was ready. And I walked about a kilometer and realized that the path split in two. Now remember, I'm 13 years old on my first hike. <laughs> um, and here I'm standing, realizing that it took a bit of time for all of this to take place, and I need to, to choose a way. And I choose the wrong one. 50% chance. And I made it. And I went about three, four kilometers on and realized I'm not seeing anyone. I actually ran. By that time, they realized over there that I was gone, so they sent help, and we missed each other at the intersection, and it was crazy. Um, but when we caught up, they asked me, where were you? And again, I thought, as a wise 13-year-old young man, I'm not going to tell you <laughs> at all. So some of them watching this video could um, really understand the essence. But stories, actually, it, it has this ability to catch you off guard. It's these surprise little moments, and, and, and a great story really triggers your imagination. And, and I love the fact that when it triggers your imagination, when you look at a story, it actually asks the question, what images do you have inside of you? Because as we go through stories, we all, in a, in, in a specific way, we would resonate with some of the, the characters in the story. And, and some of us would see ourselves as the hero, well, most of us, and, and some of us would see ourselves as villains or just people in, as a supporting cast. And I think sometimes just going through the story of the Bible, I think it's a brilliant opportunity to ask yourself this question, what image do I have inside of me? What does the Bible trigger in, in my imagination when I think about God and when I think about me? and God's role in my life. I think Pat said last week that um, the big story, this story that we're going through has, has an incredible um, script in, in terms of the fact that there's this upper story where God sort of creates everything, and then there's this um, lower story where it intersects with, with our lives. And, and the most beautiful thing, one of those making the impossible possible, is where God's involvement actually becomes visible in our lives. David speaks of this in Psalm 18, one of my favorite psalms in the um, message translation, just after uh, a battle with Saul. He said, God made my life complete when I placed all the pieces before him. I love that. Everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly was placed before him. He said, when I got my act together, he gave me a fresh start. Now I'm alert to God's ways, and I don't take God for granted. See, every day I review the way He works. I try my best to get insight into the upper story. I try not to miss a trick, and I feel put back together, and I'm watching my steps. If I look at His big overarching story, it actually gives me guidance in terms of how I need to live. And then listen to this. 
David says, God rewrote the text of my life when I opened the book of my heart to his eyes. And something just, when I was praying about this morning, I just felt that God was going to do this for people during this journey. That part of us actually engaging in this story, God's going to use this experience. He's going to use the Sundays, the Wednesday, the groups, as you dip into the Word to rewrite the story of your life. Because your story is way bigger than just the experience that you're in at present. And, and I, I'm trusting that this would become real for you. I think um, one of the slides, and Pat, I'm assuming you shared this last week, just needed to update that, is that we need to understand that in God's big story, there's four key chapters um, that we've got to get a grip on. It's the story of creation, the orange one, um, the fall, the cross, and restoration. And, and I just want to read four quick verses to, to help you understand that when we think of God's story, we've got to see it as a four-chapter gospel, the good news story. Because so often we only look at creation and we look at the fall, or we just look up until the cross. And we don't understand the implication that, that in God's view, His gospel, His good news, His story has chapters. So in Genesis 1, we get the first installment of the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It actually defines the primary role player of the story, God creating heaven and earth. Fall is all about paradise lost. And it speaks about um, what we summarize in Romans 3.23, where it says that all have sinned and fall short of the Glory of God. Who knows that verse off by heart? Romans 3.23. What does verse 24 say? We don't know. Why don't we know? Because we've been taught and we've been shaped around the fact that the gospel needs to be pushed on this verse. But if you actually read Romans 3 verse 21 to 24, you realize that this is a, by the way, statement that Paul is making. It's not the emphasis that he's trying to sort of point on. Verse 24, and that's where we come to redemption, says, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. That's the good news. Good news not in verse 23, promise you. The good news sits in verse 24, we've got to realize that what God did through Christ in every possible way overwhelmed the failure of, of Adam and brought us into this free gift um, position of righteousness that we now stand. And then the last one is restoration. Listen to what Colossians 1 says. It says, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him God reconciled what? Church-going people of a specific denomination that only worships on Sunday from 9 to 10.30. No. That God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything. Now, I did a study of the word everything in Greek, and it's amazing. You know what everything means? Literally, everything. Everything was reconciled to him. And God made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of, the, of Christ's blood on the cross. 
God is not angry at us. God made peace with us. The primary picture of Christ is actually an invitation into an incredible life that God designed for each of us. And that's the true story. And that's why we need a four-chapter picture of God's story. And then I love how Romans 8 just defines it. He says, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. That a part of God's story is taking away sin and the pain and the punishment away from us. But there's a bigger part of the story. It's actually when we become to be, uh, when we become a revelation of God's glory to the world that we live in. That's a full story. But sometimes we become stuck in our own story, in our own plot, and, and it's very seasonal. Um, and I'm not sure maybe some of you sitting here are stuck in a story. When I thought about this, sort of thought about that, that experience of you sitting at a bus station waiting for the bus, and it's just not coming. And, and, and some of you have been sitting for weeks or months or years or maybe prolonged seasons just waiting for this bus to transport you out of this experience, out of this story, out of this plot, and it's just not coming. And the question is, when, God? When will I become unstuck in this moment? And I'm here to say, I think one of the beautiful things in, in terms of God's story is that there's always movement. If you see it from beginning to end, God's story always develops. Sometimes it stands still for a while. And we think nothing's happening, but God's busy and God's preparing. So in the moments of external or internal stuckness, I think there's something that we need to realize that God is still at work in your life and in the world. We can never underestimate God's ability to interject into the key moments. And, and we realize that, that from Genesis to Revelation, this unfolding story of, of God's unfolding story um, connects his upper reality to where we are. Now, Pat last week started with uh, Genesis 1 to uh, Genesis 11 and asked me to do uh, 23 chapters today. So we're going to start reading. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, can I just say it was beautiful just to sit through those stories uh, during the last week and just to read it with Sunday school eyes again. I don't know if you've done that with the Bible lately. Literally trying to strip of everything you think you know and just to read the Bible for the story of what it is and just to allow the story to speak to you again. And I think what, what happens is we, we see things that our clever minds cannot see. That we actually become a little foolish by thinking about the story like a kid. And there's certain things that, that grips us. So I want to ask you to turn in your Bible to Genesis 12. We'll pick the story up there um, from verse 1 to 4. It's where Abram is introduced in the story. And I've got it on screen where it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. And he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples uh, on earth will be blessed through you. And I love this. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Now, it's, it's an incredible story. I think up until that point, 
uh, within the context of Abram and his family, there was no indication that God spoke in the way that he spoke to Abram. I mean, for us, it's difficult. I remember the first day that, that I grappled with the fact that God called us from South Africa to Australia. I read an email from a small church, and I read that, and, and I said, God, you wouldn't do this to me, would you? And I didn't even t- tell my wife. I replied to the people. I said, no, thank you. I didn't even pray about this, because why would God do this? Realizing that that's within a framework of understanding that God's speaking. Understanding that God would call people to go places, to do things. Abram had nothing of that. If you actually unpack some of Abram's history, his father was an idol worshiper. And we'll see a bit of that um, later, later on in the story. That his whole framework of what gods would want from their people is just sacrifice. It'll cost you your life. It'll cost you your kids. It'll cost you everything. They were puny little judgmental gods, fake gods that expected everything and returned nothing. So it's within this understanding that Abram experiences God's voice, and God says to him, Abram, I want you to go. But something different happens in the story. Instead of this God saying, you need to do this for me, you need to do this, you need, you need, you need, God comes and reveals something very different to Abram, and I believe he reveals this to us. He says, I will. And he says, I will. And he continues, I will. I will. I will. If you read through Exodus 6, you see the same thing where when God took Israel out of Egypt. They call that the I will promises of God. Where God consistently says to them, I will redeem you. I will deliver you. I will restore you. And I think this is critical for us in terms of the practical expression of our faith life. If we're still caught up in this whole thing of it's me doing things for God, you're on the wrong side of the equation. That doesn't need faith. That just needs sacrifice. But God's inviting us into a faith journey, a journey of belief, a journey of um, literally triggering our sensory capacity where where we would be followers, not instigators. And that's exactly what God does with Abram. He says, Abram, I'm going to take you on a journey. And in this journey, I will show you, and I will make you, and I will give you a reputation, and I will bless you, and I will protect you. And the only thing that I'm asking of you is that you will follow. Critical thing um, in our understanding. And and it brings us to the place where we see throughout the Bible that um, just Abram was 75 years old. not a great time to start considering um, starting a family. No uh, judgment to any 75-year-old people sitting here wanting to start a family. Um, bless you. <laughs> but we will pray for you after the service. I think it's great if that's... It's you. <laughs> but I think God uses Abram um, for his obedience and the fact that God's showing us something in the fact that he uses unqualified people. Because if God, is the one, if God is the one doing the things, if God is serious about this, I will, I will, I will. He doesn't need your qualification. He doesn't need your expertise. He doesn't need all your victories and all your successes and your ego or anything. He only needs your willingness. And that's all that Abram brought to the conversation. Abram went as the Lord had told him. In Hebrews 11 verse 8, it actually gives us, a, um, a picture. 
um, where it says, by faith, Abram. By what? By faith. Now remember, he didn't have a history of God revealing himself to him. He had nothing. He didn't have the Bible. He didn't attend a Christian school. He only had a moment where God spoke to him. And he allowed that moment to transform his life. By faith, Abram, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. I wonder sometimes if obedience has become the lost art of our Christian walk, that, that we've lost the ability to obey because we've lost the ability to listen, in a sense. Where the beauty of Abram's faith journey was triggered by a willingness to obey. And while I was preparing this, I just wrote down this um, little phrase in my journal. The place of obedience is the place of blessing. What is God asking us at this moment? And again, I want to say, if you're thinking that you need to do things for him, it's not, it's not the faith-driven revelation. It's obeying. It's following. It's just, will you listen and will you follow and for me, that's the story of the Bible. Abram, Abram had faith and he obeyed. And because he obeyed, all his troubles went away and he had the best life ever. We know that's not true. Um, it's just the opposite. Because from the moment of promise to Isaac actually being born, it took 25 years. Now you think of that. The whole promise God calling Abram to follow him was centered around the fact that God would give him an inheritance, that God would give him a, um, an offspring. And Abram followed, and he went through highs and lows. His wife was taken by an Egyptian king. Um, there was there, lots of things happened um, because he was too scared, and I can't go into the details, but Abram didn't have a soft ride, and he had to wait for 25 years before the promise was actually fulfilled. And I wonder sometimes um, if we are stuck in this place of not obeying, <laughs> um, if we are stuck in the place of not obeying because we've become so used to mic microwaving everything that God does. If God says, I want it now. We're in this, I want it all, and I want it now culture. Um, who loves microwave meals? That's the second guy we'll pray for you. So the 75-year-old starting a family and <laughs> someone gave me a three-kilogram brisket on Friday that I'm going to smoke. Not today, because it takes nine to 11 hours to do that. And actually, if you do it well, you've got to marinate it two days before and then three hours on open flames and then smoke it for the next eight hours. But I promise you, the brisket that we'll have from that is way better than the microwave brisket meal that you get. And I wonder how often we microwave God's promises to us. God, I want it, and I want it now. And we never get the big part, and we never get the thing that really satisfies that first bite where the smoke and the spices and everything just overwhelms you, and it's like, yeah, I'm African. <laughs> I need this. Um, and I'm not sharing this brisket with anyone. It's, it's, it's that experience. 
but you don't get it from a microwaved meal. Um, Abram had to wait for 25 years. And the big question is, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do in those moments where it's year after year after year, and it's 10 years, and it's 20 years, and it's 24 years? What do we do? I love what Romans 4 actually says to help us understand. It says in Romans 4 verse 18, he says, against all hope, Abram, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations. Just think about that. Year 24 of the promise not re being realized. How old's Abram? 99. So, anyone close to that? <laughs> you want to start a family, we need to pray for you. Um, 99 years old, and he's still at the place where against all hope, Abram placed his hope and believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it, as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. It says, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was dead. So it's the impossible. It can't happen anymore. It's not just that her womb was dead. Sarah's body couldn't um, birth children. In the 90 years up until that point, point, she couldn't bear any children. So we're looking at an impossible situation. But Abram believed against hope, in hope. It says in verse 20, yet, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God uh, and he was strengthened in his faith, and he gave God the glory, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. I love the fact that when God calls us, he promises and then asks. If you look at the reference in Genesis, Genesis 12, it says, Abram, I will, I will, I will, I will. These are the things that I'll do. Follow me. That the promise and the ask are directly tied into each other. And, and there's something consistent um, in this principle. David waited 15 years before he became king, from promise to king. Paul marinated for 12 years. Jesus, I mean, one of the most incredible references, was um, at 12 acknowledged to be um, the Son of God. Jesus knew at 12 years old, when um, he had the conversation in the temple, he said to them, don't you know that I need, to his mother, don't you know that I'm busy with my father's business? At 12 years. And from 12 to 30, Jesus disappears. We don't hear anything except Luke 2.52. He grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and favor with men. For 18 years, Jesus was marinated, prepared for what happened. I mean, the freakiest one in all of them is Noah. Between promise and fulfillment, 120 years. There's something consistent in the way that God works. And I want you to think of some of the promises that God has given you. And maybe you're in a season where you feel it should have happened. And, and we all want that. But trust the promise of God. And learn the ability to believe in hope against all hope. Because we ask the question, how did that happen? What did Abram know that allowed him to trust deeply? It was all centered around his faith in God. Romans 4 continues. He says, this is why 
his faith was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. His, his faith, his belief in God changed his identity. The words, it was credited to him, were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. That your faith, the word righteousness, is in essence an identity statement of who we are. That your faith has the ability to, to change your identity. It will be credited to us for righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. And listen to what verse 25 says. He says, he was delivered over to, uh, to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Easier way to say that is we were saved from sin so that we can be sa uh, saved for life. That in God's bigger economy, taking sin away was one part of the big story in order to prepare us and to expose us to this real life so that we can live as righteous, justified people, expressing God's glory to everyone around us. So God, God did something for Abram um, in terms of the revelation, the promise, but somewhere in the middle, uh, something very special happened to Abram's journey, 15 years after the initial pro promise, still 10 years to go. Um, God did something, and it really struck me, probably one of the parts of the story that really got me this time, where God made a covenant with Abram. Now, if you read in Genesis 15, verse um, 7 uh, to 8, God comes and says to Abram, he says, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Verse 8 says, but Abram said, "How, um, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of this promise? 15 years in, do you think that's a fair question to ask? <laughs> how will I know? Then God did something very interesting. Verse 9 says, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Now, this doesn't look like much, but actually, um, if you lived in that culture, you would know, you would know that this is a covenant um, being said. And most of what happened, a covenant was set between a um, king of higher position with a king or a slave or a person in a lower position. And that's exactly what happened. But interesting, um, in verse 17, it picks up the story where it says that when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates. And God moved between all the, all the um, animals that were cut in half. Why did God do that? Normally, it was the person in position of power and the person in lesser position that moved together saying that we're cutting a covenant with one another. But God cut this covenant with Abram to say that I'm taking responsibility for, uh, responsibility for my covenant with you. And in that point, God said that if you do everything right, it's still not up to you, it's me. And even if you do everything wrong, keeping this covenant in place is up to me. And it, in, a, I think, a very real sense, showed us a picture of what was coming. Because 2,000 years later, 
another covenant was struck on a cross where God sent his son to pay the ultimate sacrifice. And it was, again, a body that was mutilized. And there was a lot of blood. But this time, um, very different to the story that we see in Abram willing to offer Isaac. God came in and said, I'm not going to send a replacement. I'm sending my son. And he will take full responsibility to keep this covenant in good working order. And not just that. He actually rewrote the conditions of the covenant from a law-based system to a grace-based system so that we could enter um, not through our own performance and not through our own um, attempts, but through everything that Christ has done for us. And I sort of think of this, how often do I relate to God on the basis of a covenant? The only covenant that we sort of know, we, we have contracts, but a covenant between me and my wife, my ring broke, so I don't have it on today. I'm still married. <laughs> um, but, but this, the ring that I normally wear on this finger, speaks of a covenant. And we live in a time and day where that covenant doesn't mean much to many people. But it's still the primary covenant, the primary um, a choice that I direct my life by, that I will love her until the day that I die. And I'm trusting, and I know that's what she does. She will love me to the day that I die. And we will be faithful to one another. But that's a covenant between two people. God saying that I will be faithful to you right through to the end. And there's nothing you can do that'll change my faithfulness and my love and my commitment to you. Because my covenant has been established in eternity forever. So thinking about this and sort of capturing and wrapping this story up, um, one thing that really, really blessed me is the fact that we know the story of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. What happened? There's something that happened to a person that translated to different generations. That it wasn't just Abram's faith, it became Isaac's faith. It became Jacob's faith. That's something that God promised in terms of the offspring, in terms of the fact that every um, person, every people on this planet would be blessed through Abram was already translating through generations. And, and maybe I just want to say that, that there's some of you that's been serving God faithfully in your generation, and you're looking at your offspring, and you're saying, God, I'm not sure what's going to happen to them. It's not up to you. Trust that God would reveal His covenant to them. Because one of the most amazing stories, and it ends in, in chapter 35, is where Jacob, and his name actually means um, a usurper, someone that, that would be a trickster, someone that's, that's a liar. Um, and I don't have time to go into Jacob's journey, but Jacob's identity was literally seen as a, a con artist. And at one point, he had to meet Esau again. And as he was traveling, he sent his family over the river, and he saw an angel, a being, a thing, a person, and he decided that he's going to wrestle this being until this being blesses him. And, and it sort of caught me how desperate Jacob needed to be to say that I'm going to grab hold of you, and I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. 
And we know the, the blessing that we all would like. <laughs> Blessings of possessions and things and material. But guess what happens? When the sun started to come up, um, the, the being looked at Jacob and he said, leave me. And Jacob said, I'm not going to. You will bless me. And then he touched his hip and Jacob had a limb. And it's from that point that even the Israelites don't even eat that part of the, um, part of the flesh of any animal because of that experience. But something incredible happened in that moment. This angel, this being, looked at Jacob and said, I'm going to bless you. And the blessing is centered around this. From this point on, you will no longer be called the con artist, the usurper. You will no longer be called Jacob. But I'm forming you into Israel. Three generations later, what God started in Abram, was translated into Jacob. And we know Israel today as the nation that God used and blessed throughout history. But what did it take? It, take, it took the understanding of Abram that the place of obedience is the place of blessing. And it took Jacob um, to come to a point to say, hey, <laughs> I can see the direction and the flow of my life. And I'm going to stop that now. And I'm going to grab hold of God, and I'm going to wrestle, and I'm going to work through this until something changes in me. And I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to change until I allow God to change the essence of who I am. Two incredible stories um, that I think shows us just what God wants to do through his story. So I want to wrap this up with, with this. Um, I firmly believe that God wants to speak to people this morning who's stuck in seasons. And the seasons feels like it's been prolonged, and it feels like you've been marinated uh, for so long that you don't even know if God can. I think the first thing that I want to say is God's promise is his responsibility. And he's, um, he's someone that takes care of his word. So trust in the promise of God. The second part of that is, the call to obedience. What is God asking of you in terms of following him in this season? What does it look like on a Sunday, a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? What does it look like in your family life? What does it look like in, in everything? Your, your time, your finances, your commitment, your relationships. What does it look like to follow God in, in this season? And, and maybe the third one is just asking the question, when was the last time that you actually found any sense of desperation to say, God, I need you? I really, really need you. Or have we become so comfortable in this very comfortable life that we're living that the word desperation doesn't even exist in our known experiences anymore? When was the last time that you actually thought about the God who's writing the story? and his ability to intervene in your life and to bring to you and to change you and to do in you what you can never do for yourself. When was the last time that you actually allowed the desperation that sits in you to bubble up and to sort of bring you closer to who he is? Obedience, following, and desperation are the three things that I took out of this message for me. And I just want to pray that over your life. Is that okay? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you 
that you don't expect obedience without firstly revealing yourself. It's obedience based on revelation. So Lord, I want to pray for people sitting here this morning, Lord, that, that maybe feel that they don't have an adequate revelation of who you are. In terms of you as a father, in terms of what your son did for them. Lord, I want to pray that in this moment and in this week and in this next season forward, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them as the faithful God that has the ability, Lord, to, to create something out of nothing and to raise the dead to life. Because that's what Abraham believed. And Lord, that you would, that you would challenge each one of us sitting here to integrate obedience back into a, a framework of life. Understanding, Lord, that, that we hear and we follow. We listen and we follow. And Lord, for some people sitting here knowing that they've got to be obedient, but struggling with the cost of obedience, help them to see, Lord, that you are their great reward. That they can take the step of faith, knowing that you are responsible for your, for your own name and for your own reward. And Lord, I pray this morning that, that as we obey and as we follow, that we would connect back to a desperation that is constantly crying out to you, Lord. A desperation, Lord, that literally says we cannot live this life without God. A desperation, Lord, that would want more of you, more of your spirit, more of your empowerment, more of your life in us so that we could be a true revelation of your glory to the world that we're living in. I want to pray, Lord, that you would challenge us in the moments of comfort. Lord, that we would know that you, that, that you didn't call us to comfort. You called us, Lord, to live lives of compassion and change, Lord. Lives, Lord, that brings your, your love to this world. And that our desperation would draw us closer to you and the world that we're living in. In Jesus' name.